I want to say this, you know, as we, uh, as we move into this holiday season, one of the things that you'll notice is there are just tons of things that we're talking about. A, a trip to Arizona to help little kids, and most of the gifts they get are school supplies. Uh, a trip to Arizona and, and, and taking gifts to Navajo kids on the Navajo reservation there with, at the town of Gap where we minister. And, and then um, working with the, the kids with the angel tree and giving uh, Christmas presents to children who, who have one or sometimes both parents incarcerated. And so that those kids who may not get anything for Christmas will get, and it's two presents, one's an article of clothing and one is a toy, and, and you'll hear more about this, but everything's less than 20 bucks each, so they, they don't ask you to spend too much. But it's to give these kids uh, some, some joy at that time of year. Now, um, the, the organization that's behind that works in the prisons with the parents. They work with the children. They work with the caretakers. These kids are going to get uh, Christmas presents, but not only that, they're going to be offered mentoring, like a big brother, big, big sister kind of thing. And they're going to be offered a chance to go to a Christian camp for a week in the summertime. So it's a total family ministry. We're ministering, and we're just one little part of that. But it's an incredible thing to be able to do that. And so there's Arizona. There's these, these kids. We have a thing about Thrive today that we're trying to help Thrive out as they push towards the end of the year. And, and they're, they're ministering to so many people that they're running short on finances. And... and and here, this is just part of what goes on. We're actually, in, in our church, we're, we're behind on our budget. Now, what we've done is we've been cutting things so that actually we're basically, financially, we're breaking even, but we're also having to cut some things. And, and uh, all of these things are coming up now. This is just the way it is. But part of this is because our church, we want to be so involved in ministry in our community Affecting the people around us, affecting the least of these. For many of you, you'll, if you do the angel tree, you'll buy a present, two presents for a child who will never really get the chance to thank you. They'll never have the opportunity to personally say thank you. Because part of what we like to do is we, we give those gifts in the name of their parent who's incarcerated. And, and, and we get letters from parents who thank us about three weeks ago. I think I read one that we had just gotten. But it's because we want to impact people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that involves doing things that are physical things, just buying presents, but knowing that they will be followed up and the gospel will be presented and their lives will be changed. Um, People are working towards that. And we're just a part of that. And in Arizona, knowing we can give these kids a a, a Christmas present that's mainly school supplies because that's what they need desperately knowing that, that, that Bill and Grace and their kids, they live there. They're going to follow that up. They're going to they're impact those lives. We're just a small part of that. Knowing that all of the different things our church is involved with, we're Im- trying to impact not just our community, but even internationally throughout the world. And so I know sometimes at this time of year, you can feel like, oh, it's just uh, it's an avalanche. But partly it's because of the time of the year. Things all come together around this time And uh, we would just ask that you'd prayerfully consider what God would have you do. All right? Okay. So we're in a series on Esther. And we're we're in a section. We we just looked at it last week, and and we saw Esther. um, She's she's confronted with this need, and she's she's afraid. She's like, are you crazy? This could, I I could lose my life over this. And then it has that uh, 
To me, two great lines, Mordecai says, perhaps it was for this moment that God placed you in this position. Perhaps all that hell that you went through led to this moment. Because God's going to do something incredible through you. And then, and then she says, okay, then we, I, want, I want people fasting for me. I want people praying for me. And in three days, I'm going to go to the king. And then she says, you know, the, it, it, to me, it's just incredible. A human being say, and if I perish, I perish. If he kills me right on the spot, so be it. I'll do this. And I'm thinking, what tremendous courage that may, must take. Especially, you know, sometimes when something happens in our lives, and, and it's incredibly frightening, but it, it happens to us. Adrenaline rushes, and, and we, we, we react. But have you ever had something, you, it's like you know it's coming, but it's days away. And it just, it just kills you in that time. And she's got three days of prayer and fasting before she walks into that room. And the king just decides, no, I didn't ask you in here. That's automatic death. And, and she even reminds Mordecai, he has not asked to see me in over a month. I may be on the outs with him. So this might be easy for him to go, huh, I'd like a new queen. You're dead. That's that. So I started thinking about this concept of courage and fear. And I think this is something we need to explore. So today is a rabbit trail. It's on your sheet there. Today is a rabbit trail. We're going to look at David. And I want to read, starting at verse 40, Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of a shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. When he looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with your sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all of you into our hands." As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out his stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And so when we look at this passage, what, what I want us to think about, and we've talked about this before in the past. I, I know some of you this may be somewhat familiar, and I've kind of worked with this some, because one of the things I want to talk about is where do we get courage? Where do we get the strength to handle the fears that are such a part of our life? And I started thinking about times in my life when I've been afraid. And uh, on our 15th or 20th, I'm not sure, anniversary, my wife and I flew to Colorado. We both love to ski. And so we took, this is, that was our one big trip of our life. And we met her brother and, the, and friends there. And we skied at a place called Crested Butte. And Crested Butte is known for having the steepest slopes in the world that you can get to on a lift without having to be helicoptered or something like that. 
And so at Crested Butte, if some of you have skied, you know they have all these, they have, they have green, they have blue, they have black diamond, and they have double black diamond. And then Crested Butte does something a little different. They have double blacks where they put EX in there, which means expert, 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 expert. And one of those places is called the head wall. This is a picture of it right here. That's the, that is down the head wall. And uh, as you see, the ground is about eight miles lower. And this is the sign that you read before you get on the lift. Stop and read this. Expert skiers only. Falling is not an option. Hint, falling equals hospital visit or trip to the morgue. Easier way is behind you. Live to ski another day and turn around if you're not familiar with this area. And this, and no picture really does it justice, that's the head wall. You can see in the very middle there's a guy skiing there. That kind of looks like me because he looks like he's in full snowplow mode. And from a distance, if you zoom in, he's screaming. Because that's what happened to me. There was a group of, you know, it was a group of us. And we said, let's do the head wall. We've seen it in all these ski videos. And I was like, <laughs> the head wall. I'm an, I'm an East Coast expert. I'm not a West Coast expert. And they said, oh, come on. Are you chicken? And inside I said, yes, I am. And outside I said, no, I'm not chicken. Let's do the head wall. And then we saw that sign and it was like, <laughs> and they're like, come on, come on. And we all got in the lift and you ski through some little woods and then you come to that sign, head wall, and then it just looks like the world falls out below you. And there's all these boulders. And, and I want to tell you, I was shaking scared. I was wet my pants scared. I was so scared. And, and, but fear of being mocked will move us to great... So I went down, and I wish, I wish I could tell you I just skied down effortlessly smooth and cool, but I'm telling you, I screamed like a little boy the whole way down. And when I reached the bottom, it bottoms out. I fell over in the snow and I cried. I said, thank you, God. God, I will never do that again. I will never, I will never tempt you to kill me early again like that. And we all skied down. And then someone said, let's do it again. There was six of us. And five people said, no, and the sixth one said, I didn't want to either. I just thought I'd say that. So, scared out of my wits. Scared like I could die scared, kind of scared. And so we have a need for courage. In, in uh, 1 Samuel 17, earlier than this, David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine, this Goliath. Let no one lose heart on account of him. And the point here is that everyone had lost heart, even Saul. Saul is looking for a champion to fight. Now, this is, is what they would call in those days champion fighting. Uh, what would happen is you'd get two armies together, and oftentimes uh, it could be brutal and the loss of life could be terrible. And the problem is whoever wins is going to collect tribute from the people who lose for years. But if you kill all their men, you're not going to get much tribute. And so the idea is you don't want to kill them all. You want to win the battle, but you don't want to kill them all. And so what happened is sometimes they'd have th this representative. It was champion fight. And the idea was these two champions fight. And we don't kill everybody. Whoever wins, the others pay them tribute. 
this much a year, blah, 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 the whole thing. That way you save all the workers. It's economic is what it's about because it's all about money. War is always about money. And so they had lost heart and they were looking desperately for a champion. I mean, they're looking desperately if they find this young kid and nobody has armor that'll fit him. And so the armies would line up. There'd be a valley. They'd line up on either side and they'd watch this thing fight. They'd watch these two fight, and the loser would serve the victor. So Goliath comes into the, and we know previously Goliath has come for a number of days. He'd just walk down in the valley and said, send out your champion. Come on, you bunch of wimps. You know, he would just, you know, in those days, it would be that type of talk. He would insult the Israelites. He would insult Saul. He would insult God. And so Saul is struggling here, and David says, let's not lose heart here. I can sense that there's no courage here. That, that means to not let your heart fall and to shrink away, to, be, to give in to fear. Because the key is you need your warriors to stand their ground and not shrink away, not to run away. And so we have this now, we're getting into this idea of courage, which seems to be something along the lines of doing the right thing regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences, regardless of the danger. Doing the right thing, irregardless of those things. You know, in the ancient world, they talked about courage and they spoke about it all the time. In the ancient world, it really required courage. It was a brutal place to live. There was evil and danger around them all the time. Life was insecure. But for us, it's not so much. Courage tends to be more episodic. We just occasionally, I mean, you might have, well, no one here, but might have just happened to be a passenger on the Titanic. You might have just happened to be working in the Twin Towers on 9-11. But it's not the same as as in the past. And we always tend to think courage is this idea of charging the enemy bravely, you know, running with this incredible bravery. But that's not the whole picture. That's not the whole picture because we know there's these examples of these people who have done incredibly courageous things, and then they come maybe in war, and then they come back and... and, uh, they come home and they bow to pressure in their personal lives and they live lives of cowardice. They treat their, their, their wife, their husband terribly. They treat their kids terribly. They fold under the pressure of the business world because they couldn't lose face. So they were courageous in one area, but not so much in other areas. And so this idea of courage is kind of hard to understand because some people can face incredible physical pain and never admit that there's a weakness in their marriage that's crushing their family, and a wreck of their relationships. And so then the thing becomes, doing cur- having courage is doing the right thing regardless of circumstance, re- regardless of, of what's going on, regardless of my greatest fear. Because now you start to think, what's your greatest fear? What is your greatest fear? Courage is doing the right thing in spite of your greatest fear. You may know someone who worries a lot about what other people think, And you may say to yourself, what's the big deal? Well, yours may be different from theirs. Courage is facing your heart's greatest nightmare and doing the right thing anyways. Doing the unselfish thing no matter what. And once we see it that way, then we can see that we can see the devastation in our own lives and in the lives of those around us because of our cowardice. We can begin to understand how our cowardice affects other people when we give in, when we do the wrong thing. 
And I can see this a lot in parent-child relationships, and I'm not judging anyone. I had five kids. I'm guilty here too, but some parents are, are so afraid of not doing well with their kids, not being successful, that, they, are, that they, uh, they give in to their kids all the time. They can't say no. And what will happen is, if you ever talk to somebody like this, they say, oh, no, no, I say no. I say no all the time. But I don't know if you've seen this. You see it happen out. And you see it work out in stores oftentimes. The child says, can I have this, please? No. We got you something last visit. Please. Ah. They lay on the ground and they start to kick. So the parent grabs them. And the parent's like, oh, my goodness. Oh my and they go back and forth and get back and forth. And back. finally the parent goes, here, just take it and shut up. So the parent did say no, but the kid got the toy. That can work that way. Some people are so, so worried about not being successful, they overwork and they neglect their children. Not enough time. Why? This is a form of cowardice. They're not doing the right thing in this area because of a fear that dominates them in this area. And so we have to be self-aware enough to understand where are, where are my greatest fears? How do I give in to them sometimes? Where is the cowardice that's in my life? Fear makes us self-absorbed. Fear is the opposite of love. Fear causes us to not serve others. Fear causes us to live only for ourselves. Courage enables us to do the right thing no matter what. But how do we get it? How do we get courage? Because here we have a great example of an imperfect courage. In most sermons that you will hear about this, in most stories, if you oftentimes in children's literature, Goliath represents your greatest fears, and you need to be like David, and you need to attack them. David is your example. Be like David. Because the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? I think there's something wrong with that. I think it's kind of shallow. Because when you get into situations that deal with your fears, and someone says, suck it up and be like David, deep down, you know that's too simple. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. My experience is the bigger they are, the harder they hit, and it hurts. That's my experience. And so when you look and say, i got to be like David and face my fears and attack, 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 what can happen is that can leave you feeling guilty and worthless. I want you to see something here. The writer takes great pains here to talk specifically about Goliath and how he's armed, and he goes into great detail. He said he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. All right? Now, we can read this, and we can miss what the writer is trying to tell us. Goliath is a man of iron and bronze. He is the epitome of power. He has the latest technology. This is not a story about a hero and a villain. This is a story about two heroes, two alternate approaches to heroism. Goliath is the champion of the Philistines. David is sent out to be the champion of of the Israelites. And this is very key for us because there's two different ways of dealing with fear, of having courage. And the narrator is not saying just stuff your fear and attack, attack. He's giving two different ways of dealing with fears. What's the wrong way? It's Goliath's way. This is the conventional understanding of courage and how to deal with fear. Goliath has three things going for him. Number one, 
He has great strength, physical prowess. He's, 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 he's huge. Number two, he's high tech. He has bronze. That's the latest armor. Probably, maybe Saul, but none of the Israelites had bronze. And so he's high tech. David has a sling. Okay? It's two pieces of leather with a leather cup in the middle. That's low tech. What is that against bronze? It's worthless. Secondly, uh, thirdly, Goliath has self-esteem. Incredible self-esteem. Look how he talks to David. He mocks him. He says, this is ridiculous. Goliath's courage is that he's banishing any fearful thoughts by looking himself with supreme confidence. I've got the size. I've got the technology, right? And I've got this great self-esteem. I've never been defeated he has no doubts. Think about this. Goliath sees no danger in this situation. No worry. And this is how the world says to get courage. This is what happens sometimes, not all, but this can happen uh, when you go to people for advice. Um, a lot of times you'll hear about people talk about this and, and counselors, counselors talk about this. And I, I want to say something. It is good. It is good. Visualization. Visualization is what a lot of people use. Visualize success. Banish your fears by seeing yourself as successful. I went to a major university website. I don't want to down this university, so I don't want to mention it. But a major university website talking about their, uh, talking about their, their, the counseling they, they offered and talking about their, uh, their program for people to get degrees. And they were talking about, they had a section on how to deal with fear. So I thought, okay, this is very interesting. I'm going to go. And they were talking about visualizing success and banishing thoughts of fear, thoughts of failure. Get rid of those thoughts of fear. Get rid of those thoughts of failure. Just visualize success. And one of the examples they gave, they gave a number of examples, but one of the examples they gave was a lady who, who she really struggled with interaction with other people, especially any kind of confrontation. It was just dis- disabling for her. And so what happened was she had this article that she'd bought from the store, and it wasn't what she wanted, but she could not get herself to go return it for a refund. She couldn't because she, it just paralyzed her. They were talking about she got to the door one time, the door of the, of, of the store, and she was like, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Physically, it just disabled her. And so they worked with her on visualizing success. Visualize yourself walking through that door. Visualizing yourself putting that. And, and I know for m- many of us, we're like, what? All right? But I also know this. There's some of you here going, I know how that feels. I know that feeling. And we're all different. So we can't look down on anyone else who, doesn't, who struggles with things we don't struggle with. But they were telling her, visualize this, visualize this. Going in, putting it on the counter. It didn't fit. I'd like my money back. Visualize them smiling and saying, no problem, and handing you your money. And she worked on it and worked on it. And one day, she walked in that store. She laid it on the counter. I want my money back. They said, no problem. They gave her the money back. And she walked out. I, I, dealt, I dealt with my fears. Okay? But I... This works up to a point, up to a point. And here's what I mean by that, because this can be somewhat of a counterfeit source, because it doesn't always work, and here's why. Goliath banished all his, just like her, he banished his fears. And as a result, he's out of touch with reality, and he cannot see that there is danger in this situation. It cannot occur to him. David is aware of the danger. But Goliath isn't, and that makes him vulnerable. 
Because you see, feel for, uh, feel for, fearfulness, though sometimes it can be disproportionate, disproportionate, I understand that, but fearfulness is realistic. The world is filled with bad things. Bad things do happen. It is reasonable to recognize that. And to banish all fears and say this, this isn't going to... And one of the things they said is there's a lot of bad things, but they probably won't happen to you statistically. But yeah, but what if they do? Because sometimes they do. And banishing fear can open you up to, up to danger. Now, there has to be a balance. And in short, tense situations, we talk, I mentioned this, adrenaline plays a huge part in this, a fire or maybe a war, a child in danger. But there was a lady named Edith Corse Evans. She was an upper-class woman in England, in, 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 in New York, I'm sorry. She booked a passage on the Titanic. When the Titanic was sinking, they made their way to lifeboats, and she got in the last seat on the lifeboat in that section. And another woman came up who was a lower class out of the lower class area, and that woman started crying and said, can't you find one more seat? I have three kids. And Edith Corse Evans got up out of her seat, stepped back on the deck, and said, take my seat. Now, where do you get that kind of courage? Because see, she's not visualizing success right now. There's no success option in that situation. This isn't getting your money back for a shirt that doesn't fit. This is life and death. And so this gets us into something that's very important. Visualization works up to a point. And I don't want to disrespect this university or or people who teach that because I think it's a good, it works in certain situations. But when the brave thing to do, when the right thing to do absolutely means you're going to die or something terrible is going to happen, where do you get the courage for that? Not by banishing fear and looking at yourself with confidence. That's not going to happen. What we really need is not banishing our fears. What we need is something that looks at our fears, feels our fears, and does the right thing anyway. Something greater than our fears. Not that makes them go away, but something that weighs our fears and says, this has more weight. This is more important than even what my fears are dealing with right now. Now, a story about David and Goliath would never be complete without something from the Lord of the Rings. Near the end, Eowyn, who is a woman who disguised herself as a warrior with the riders of Rohan, is standing over her king and kinsman, Theoden, and he is trapped. And a huge Goliath appears. A Nazgul, a demonic guy on a, on a drake, riding on a drake. And he tells her to stand aside. And they have this confrontation. It doesn't say it in the movie, but in the book, this is because it gives me the chills. In the book, he tells her, I have the power to take you where you will not die. But your mind will be laid bare and you will scream for ages before the lidless eye. He says, that's the power I have. Fear me. 
And what does she do? She draws her sword and says, do what you will, but be you living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's so interesting. Tolkien one time said, one of the greatest heroes of his books is Eowyn, this woman. He did that on purpose. Where do you get the courage when you know you're going to die? Where does that come from? How do you face your greatest nightmare and rise above it? And so we're going to talk about courage from God. It's very interesting in this passage. We're not going to reread it, but it's very interesting in this passage. David's speech, the writer does this, and it's very important. David's speech is longer than the description of the battle, of the fight. The description of the fight is like that. David's speech, David goes into detail. Okay, we, we should read it. We should read it. Okay. David says, you came against me with a sword and a spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. David doesn't even have a sword. What is he telling him? Not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to take your sword and cut your head off with it. Sucker. That's what he's saying, right? Today I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine. I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. The whole world will know there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, but the battle is the Lord, and He will give you all into our hands. How do you get that kind of courage? How do you get that kind of courage? And see, <clears throat> this is where a lot of people will say, "Aha! Here's the key." You know, have the faith of David. And so then we work really hard to work up this, the faith of David, and then it doesn't work out very well, and we start feeling guilty again. And, and because basically, when, we, when you start doing that, you're just spiritualizing the Goliath's courage. You, you're, you're just saying, if I do good enough and I work hard enough, I'll be successful like David. Because you're saying, if I obey God and have faith, he'll bless me and he won't let bad things happen to me. There's... And that's a dangerous place to have your foundation for your courage. I live for God. I believe in God. Therefore, I'm safe. Because to banish bad things, the thoughts of bad things happening to you is something that I think Scripture struggles, we, we can struggle with. I, I look at people like John the Baptist. He was a servant of God, and he did really good things. And he was beheaded. And all the disciples except for one lived poor and died young. And so if we think, if we think that serving and working hard and screwing up our faith and being strong like David is going to give us this long, fruitful life, we have to be careful with that. We have to be careful because some of the most godly people, that, did, that's, that was not their fate. And sometimes God does that and praise him for that. But here's the thing. Having a courage that works in the face of our fears is what we need. So the key is then asking ourselves, who are we in this story? It's not saying be David, because that's not who we are. We are part of the army of Israel. That's who we are. We're the guys shaking. You see how big that dude is? He's all bronze, man. We're doomed, right? We're all scared, we're part of the army. We're not David. And so, David says, let no one lose heart. 
which is a very diplomatic way of saying there's a whole lot of cowards here, right? And God sent a savior for cowards. David does not go to the other warriors and say, hey, let's all rush Goliath together. You can do it. Visualize yourself killing him, right? And us dancing on his body. Visualize. He doesn't do that. God does not send this example for us. We're not saved through this inspiration or emulation that is being like him. We're saved, and Scripture tells us this in the New Testament. We're saved by not inspiration, not emulation, imputation. Now, what is imputation? We talk about this, but imputation is that something is moved over. It's a, it's a financial word, right? You know, if somebody says, wow, Bob, I was looking at your bank account. You really don't have much money. Well, I'm going to give you, and if any of you are interested, I'm, I'll talk to you, a, a million dollars, right? I'm going to give you a million dollars. Now, and here's the thing. There's, I'm going to do that for you. Am I a millionaire? Not yet. Not yet. I know there's good intentions. But then one day, I go online, I look at my bank account. There's a million dollars in my bank account. I'm a millionaire. Why? Because it was transferred from someone else's account to my account. The righteousness of Jesus Christ has been transferred from his account to your account. And so, let me explain this. Two ways that David's story is utterly different from all other hero stories. You know, there's some great hero stories out there. Hercules and Odysseus and Beowulf and Sigur and King Arthur and, and all these great, great heroes that can inspire us and we can emulate. But David is not that. David's story is different. First of all, why? Because in this story, the hero is weak. He's puny. When, when the prophet Samuel goes to pick out the next king, he looks at all of Jesse's sons, David's brothers. And he's like, dude, big dude, big sword. Yep, that's got to be him. God says, no, 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 no. He goes, that's it. Do, do you have any other, do you have any other kids? And, and he says, and it, it, it almost it says, in a sense, the punk, the puny one, he's out watching, he's out watching the sheep, but I figured you didn't want to see him. Well, bring him in. And he comes in and he's this little guy. And, and God says, that's the one. The Savior here is weak. He's too little and too small for Saul's armor. And he is successful in spite of his weakness. He's successful because he's weak. Goliath thinks, this guy's small. This is silly. This is like a joke. And he loses his life. So first, God's Savior is weak, and he saves through weakness in this story. Secondly, God's Savior is a representative, not an example, not an inspiration. He's a substitute. This is champion warfare. He's fighting on behalf of everyone. Whatever happens to him happens to everyone. If he loses, they all lose. If he wins, they all win. So this is representative, not example, not emulation, when Goliath comes out and challenges him, you know, you notice when David's speech, David's not like, I'm going to kick you. I'm gonna kick you. He, what is he saying? He's saying, no, the Lord is going to do this to you. The Lord is going to give me this victory. The Lord is the God who doesn't use sword or spear. The Lord is the one who saves. He points, he's pointing to God. David does not say, I'm doing this on my own, own power. In 1 Samuel 17, Wait, 
Yep, sorry. I went one too far. There we go. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are, are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll be your subjects. If I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. See, this is representative, representational fighting. So David is fighting as a legal representative of his people. And so there's a key in that. David is not just fighting for them. He's fighting as them. They will be treated as if they had done what he, had, what he does. If he wins, they win. If he loses, they lose. If he's brave, they're treated as if they're brave. If he's a coward, they're treated as if they're cowards. This is what imputation is. This, what happens to David is imputed to his people. And th- what difference does it make? that David's story is so radically different from all the other hero stories. All the difference in the world. Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 11, we're given a list of heroes of the faith. Hebrews 12, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And then notice the next part. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not on the witnesses. Fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning his shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That word Arthur, Arthur, author is the word archagos. Archagos is the Greek word for champion, prince, the person who is your savior. And so here he's saying in this, he's, he's, he, when he says this to us in, in Hebrews chapter 12, he's saying, who is your champion? Jesus, fix your eyes on him. He's your champion, not on the heroes. We see the heroes, we appreciate the heroes, they can, we can learn from them. But he says, our champion is Jesus. Our champion is Jesus. And what he did is imputed to us. Just like what David does is imputed to the children of Israel. God sent the ultimate David, Jesus Christ. And he came, not in strength, he came in weakness. He came as a baby. And he did not save us in spite of his weakness, but through his weakness, through his humanity. By becoming a human being, he became weak and saved us through that. He did not save us from physical death like David did, but saved us from eternal death. He did not save us at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He went into the ultimate valley of death and became our champion. Which leads to an interesting thought. Our God is courageous. He became human and vulnerable and needed courage. And what is courage? Remember, courage is facing your deepest nightmares, your deepest fears, and doing the right thing anyway. And when Jesus walked into the the Garden of Gethsemane, what does it say? He was shocked when he realized what was next. He knew it was coming, but now as a man, And it says, he cries out, God, is there any way, any way to do this differently? 
Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Interestingly, he echoes what his mother prayed 30-something years earlier. Not my will, your will. And so what did he do? He faced his greatest fears and did the right thing anyway to save us, to be our champion. So bravery and courage over the long haul doesn't come by inspiration and emulation. Not by saying, I want to be like David. This is the story of a champion, someone who takes our place. And Jesus was brave in my place. And God now imputes that to me and delights in me. Get this. As if I was his champion. He delights in me as if I was his champion because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to my account. When he sees me, he sees Jesus. When he sees you, he sees Jesus and he delights in you like he delights in Jesus. Think of the joy that is wrapped up in that. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the presence of enough joy, of enough love, of enough contentment that fear loses its power to intimidate me. We see that here. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him. In the movie Hook, which is like my favorite movie. Peter Pan has grown up and he's lost the ability to fly. And he has to find his happy thought again. And one day, he sees his son Jack and he goes, Jack, I just realized it's you. You're my happy thought. I'm going to cry over a fairy tale. Uh, You're my happy thought. And he starts to rise up off the ground. You are God's happy thought. He derives incredible joy from you. Envisioning Jesus dying on the cross as our example is not what does it for us. It's envisioning Jesus dying on the cross for me. Jesus is not, as some people would like to make him, just an example of a great loving sacrifice. It is, that is true. But the point is, he died for me. He died for me. Not so that I emulate him, because I never could. It's impossible but it's so that he can impute to me his righteousness. And so fix your eyes on Jesus, your champion. He did it for you in your place. And that's what David did. He was the champion of Israel. He did it for them. He was a foreshadowing of the greatest sacrifice that Jesus would make. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Lord, help us uh, to be willing to start to face our greatest fears and to recognize what it is to live courageously in spite of them.
Help us to be willing to consider what it is to, to live courageously in this world that we are in right now. Father, we don't always fear our, for our life, but there are other fears that can seem we could dominate us at times, and we pray that as we fix our eyes on you, our champion and also the one who will perfect our faith, then we know we are safe in your arms and help us to live that way. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering, and uh, this is uh, what our regular tenders and our members do as a part of their worship. If you're a guest here, we're not asking you to give. We don't want you to feel.